What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss all things pertaining to history, mythology, philosophy, and how those things intersect into our modern, popular, contemporary storytelling. I don't know if you can tell, but today's episode is going to be fantastic. I am very excited to be here. Dare I say, this is going to be a bodacious episode. It should be most triumphant, Derek. I agree. So I want to give you guys a little context to how we got to this week's episode. Last week, we talked about the Amazon Prime show, Good Omens, We talked about how it relates to major themes such as free will, determinism, the nature or very existence of God. And though that sounds very heavy, it was also fundamentally an optimistic episode because Good Omens was and is an optimistic show. This week, we wanted to ride that positive train and we wanted to talk about stories that inspire us and stories that we find that are fundamentally optimistic about humanity, humanity's nature, and humanity's uh, past, present, and future. And this led us to a little-known film from the 80s called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie, and I'm so excited that we're getting to it finally, because this is one of my favorites. It's also, uh, we're inspired to do this because it's kind of the season of Keanu on the internet. Uh, John Wick 3 came out recently, and uh, he made an appearance in a game at E3. He is uh, all over and all around uh, making waves in the world again after experiencing a sort of A-listing in um, The Matrix back in the 90s. Uh, There's a renaissance of Keanu and just a flood of love being ushered at him from all corners of the internet, which I think is well-deserved. And so we wanted to go back to the source. We wanted to go back to the movie that I think best encompasses his wonderful career. Uh, And that, for me, is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and, of course, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, the sequel. Tonight, we're going to talk about the first one, and then at some point, we're going to come back and talk Bogus Journey as well. We'll see. Guys, if you like this Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and you want more Bill and Ted on this podcast, you're going to have to let us know because we want to know if you want a Bogus Journey based off of this one. So tell us what you think of this one and then tell us if you want more Bill and Ted because we'll definitely talk more Bill and Ted if you so desire. Absolutely. And there's a lot to say about both films. Too much to squeeze into one uh, podcast. 
I would agree. And also I've seen Bogus Journey once, maybe 25 years ago. So yeah, we gotta, we gotta get you back in the times. I've seen uh, excellent adventure many times. So this movie is not as modern or as fresh. It involves two main characters, Bill and Ted, and their aspirations to form a band called wild stallion. As it turns out, this band is instrumental in forming a utopian global human civilization many, many centuries in the future. And this civilization has figured out things like interstellar travel and time travel. However, there is an issue. These two young would-be musical saviors of humanity are failing their history class. And if they fail the history class, Ted's more white right-wing, pardon me, leaning father is going to send Ted to military school making the band impossible. Yeah, military school in Alaska. Hence, the man Rufus comes from the future utopia, which Bill and Ted are instrumental in forming, in a time machine that's shaped like a uh, telephone booth, and Bill and Ted go throughout time collecting historical figures to go and give a speech about the importance of history and what major historical figures would think of their town San Dimas. San Dimas. Wow. Major blank right there. Yeah. San Dimas High School Football Rules, dude. So in this, they collect everyone from Socrates to Abraham Lincoln, Joan of Arc, Billy the Kid. Napoleon Bonaparte. Genghis Kong. Sigmund Freud. Ludwig von Beethoven. I think we hit them all. Did we miss anyone? That was most of them. Yeah. They collect all of these historical figures, bring them into the present 1980s, and do a triumphant display on what these historical figures would think of San... I keep wanting to say San Bernardinus, and that's not right. No, San Dimas. San Dimas. I keep adding words to it. San Dimas. And it's amazing and epic, and they get to form their band, um, presumably, which would then form a global, peaceful, uh, more enlightened human civilization. And that's the first movie. Absolutely. Thank you for that recap. That was awesome. Uh, before we jump into analysis, if you want to get in touch with us and you want to tell us what you thought of this Bill and Ted episode, please reach out to us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com for extra content, including blogs, uh, sources and inspiration that you can check out. We also have a link to our merch store where you can get a Midnight Myth or Wheel of Ka t-shirt or sweatshirt or mug, whatever you want. Uh, and you can also find a link to our Patreon on that website. Patreon, you can pledge as little as a dollar a month a month, and as much as $25 a month, whatever you feel comfortable giving uh, to help us create this podcast and continue putting out the content that we're putting out. We really appreciate it. And every single level is going to get some uh, additional perk, whether that's discounts on merchandise or extra episodes monthly. So we very, very much appreciate your support and would love to have you. And a major milestone, we just hit 600 Twitter followers. Thank you, Twitter community. We love you. And special thank you to all of our Patreons. You guys are the fucking best. Absolutely. And if you have five minutes and you don't have $5 and you want to support the podcast for free, head over to your favorite podcast listening app, especially Apple Podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating or review. It really helps us get out there and reach uh, greater audiences. Boom. Let's jump into it. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work. All things Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. 
Wonderful. What? So there's a few ways that we could start this conversation. So I want to open this up here. We can understand Bill and Ted's excellent adventure on a few different layers. Layer one is understanding it as a story about time travel. Right. And what it says about time travel and the time travel mechanic and time travel as that pertains to both film and other forms of media and literature. Another one would be history. What it says about history, what it says in particular about how to teach history. Um, that would be another way that we could jump into this too. What do you think? Where would you like to begin in our analysis? Well, I would be happy to begin with the time travel element of it because I think that there's a lot we can learn from the history of the genre, and that'll help us kind of parlay into the history and the politics that are really at play within Bill and Ted. Great. Uh, one thing that I love so much about this movie is that it is way smarter than it has any business being. It's a movie about, it's a slacker buddy comedy and a slapstick time travel epic at the same time. It's these two genres that shouldn't work together that 100% do. And that seems on the outset, like a really dumb movie about a couple of really dumb guys. And it is, but it's also really brilliant on a number of different levels, whether those are moral levels, whether those are uh, in the complexity and the layers of the jokes about the historical figures. I'm thinking particularly about the corn dog joke that Freud is inadvertently making in the mall uh, as he lets his the corn dog that he's holding droop while he's being ridiculed by a couple of beautiful women in the mall food court. Uh, this is a movie that has so much more going on beneath the surface than uh, you might expect when you first encounter it. Um, really? See, I feel like it's all on the surface. And, and not to say that it's not deep. I don't feel like there's a ton that you can scratch. Like, it's all right there, and like shiny neon. This is what this movie is and is about. I get that. I could totally see that. But what I mean here is you go in thinking this is just a dumb buddy comedy. And I think at the end of the day, it's about a lot more than that. And it's sure. a lot more sincere than that. It's a lot more sincere than just stupid jokes and uh, funny, you know, valley girl surfer dude accents. Fair uh, enough. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, but yeah, I'd be happy to jump into some of the time travel elements of it and where I think the influences are on Bill and Ted and why I think those are important for the story, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Let me ask you a question to kick this off. Is that cool? Yeah. What is the virtue of time travel as a storytelling mechanic? Yeah. Why okay. is it good or is it good? I think that's a great question to get started with. Um, I think Every story that deals with time travel answers that question in a different way, if it attempts to answer it at all. There are some movies and some stories that uh, are not that interested in answering why time travel, and they're more interested in just saying, hey, isn't it cool that we can do time travel? And that's absolutely fine. But I think Bill and Ted has its own very specific answer to this question uh, that I think will reveal kind of as we explore uh, the influences on the movie and its implications in the future, if that's cool. Yeah, definitely. So I'd love to start with the inception of the time travel genre, because I think it's very important to crafting how the Bill and Ted adventure uh, shakes out. And that's going to take us back to some 19th century literature, of all things, to the birth of the time tra travel genre. Uh, and there are two great literary texts that we can point to, although there are a few other uh, stories that also dealt with time travel in other ways before and immediately after these came out. But these are both uh, being written just at the tail end of the 19th century. 
Uh, and one of those is going to be Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is a great satire written by Mark Twain about a Connecticut Yankee who suffers a head trauma and wakes up mysteriously in the court of King Arthur in the Dark Ages in medieval Britain. And so it satirizes the age of chivalry and watches this character who has an ability to uh, know the future, who knows future events, passing himself off as a great magician and duping all of the historical figures into thinking that he has access to some sort of primal magic. So very funny, very interesting book that introduces time travel to the past. I think we get a nod to it in Bill and Ted when they travel back to, uh, I think, 15th century Britain to meet those historical babes who they end up falling in love with and joining wild stallions. Uh, but the other piece of time travel literature from the tail end of the 19th century that I would want to talk about is H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And H.G. Uh, Wells is a very famous writer. He's considered the father of science fiction. Uh, he lived about 1866 to 1946, and his major works other than The Time Machine are War of the Worlds, which you've probably heard of, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, and a lot more, fiction and nonfiction alike. So The Time Machine uh, is sort of a pulpy novel. It's really weird, and it's kind of a socialist odyssey that mostly is about time travel to the future. Uh, but Wells actually coined the term time machine for this novella that he wrote. Uh, and he kind of pioneered the idea of time travel using or via a vehicle. And now time machines are pretty much present in almost all time travel literature uh, and all time travel fiction. Yeah, totally. So the time machine takes the protagonist, who's known simply as the traveler, into a distant future where the world has become a garden paradise inhabited by a happy and innocent race. Uh, he eventually, of course, as all utopian stories go, he discovers a dark underbelly uh, where he deduces that humanity has evolved into two races. One, the upper classes have evolved into this uh, you know, happy and carefree race that inhabits the paradise. And then the working class has evolved into these troglodytes who live uh, in wells underneath the world and come out and eat the rich at night. Uh, so very interesting socialist odyssey that has some, uh, some social critique on class. And he was, uh, he was very outspoken about class and, uh, and its, its dangers and how important it was to uh, offer basic rights to all people. He was a very interesting person. But he was also a futurist. And his writing anticipated world wars. It anticipated airplanes. It anticipated the internet. He had a book called The World Brain that basically laid out a proto-Wikipedia uh, and said that there would be a world where we uh, replace traditional educational institutions with networks that everyone can access and has a sort of free and socialist ideal about it. Uh, and he was good friends with Churchill. So his ideas... Uh, in many ways made these sort of exchanges and these correspondences with world politics. Uh, Churchill, even in one of his most famous speeches, used a term, used a word that, um, or a phrase that Wells had put into War of the Worlds to describe the Martians coming as the gathering storm. And Churchill used that to describe the rise of the threat of the Nazis. So this guy was very influential in politics. But what I think is most important to note about Wells with regard to Bill and Ted is that this guy who 
is responsible for our modern notion of the time machine uh, and who laid out the basis of this entire genre was fundamentally an optimist. Uh, he believed that science and that scientific exploration and physics were capable of making these huge achievements that would lead to world peace. He wrote extensively on human rights. He wrote a book called The Rights of Man that formed the basis later of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted by the, human, uh, by the United Nations in 1948. Uh, and one of the things that he anticipated was globalization. And his uh, most consistent political philosophy was that we were inevitably heading towards and should be heading towards and should be advocating for a world state or a global government uh, where we would declare that our nationality is mankind uh, rather than drawing divisions between us. He believed that that would end war and that would bring about peace and prosperity globally. Essentially, this vision that he had was of a world where maybe the air is clean, the water is clean, and even the dirt is clean. Bowling averages are way up, mini golf scores are way down. I'm quoting the first... Um, yep. First monologue by Rufus about the year 2688 in San Dumas, California. So I think while we could debate the merits of a globalized, centralized government for years, and people likely have, because that, of course, would have its own consequences, I think it's important to point out that the father of science fiction believed that was the key to uh, a great society, to a peaceful society and a prosperous society, a global, centralized government where good people were in charge that also advocated for universal human rights, that advocated for being excellent to each other. That's amazing. So there, there are a few things I want to unpack with that point that you just made there. And thank you yeah. for drawing those connections. Absolutely. So the first thing that kind of rang out to me hearing you discuss Wells as the inventor of the time machine is the word machine. And that the fact that time travel in a Wellsian way is mechanized, meaning that it is linked to humankind's ability to augment labor through mechanization. Yeah. That eventually the, th the very same things that make it possible for us to move in space, such as cars, airplanes, boats, submarines, helicopters, you name it, are also the things that will eventually allow us to transcend and move through time itself. And so one, and then two, I also love the idea that inevitably there'd be a global pan-Earthian man-humankind society that doesn't draw a distinction between who you are based upon what region of the world you were born. And though we see very little of the future society of Rufus that the music of Wild Stallions helped inspire and create, we certainly get the sense that it is global, that it's not just America that has this prosperity. Yeah, it's not just San Dimas. It's all of Earth has this prosperity based upon the musical principles of Wild Stallion. Yeah. And I think those things are both in accordance. And I also really enjoy that there's a fundamental optimism in Wells and how he wrote, and there is certainly a fundamental optimism in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I still think the central question that I'd like to explore is why, like, is time travel a good story mechanic? Right. Like, let me give you a specific example, and this is not to bring negativity into the debate, but as food for thought. Let's consider the third act of 
um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And let's consider when they are tasked with the ability, with the job of freeing all the historical figures who got arrested at the mall. And as they are trying to free them from the mall, there are several challenges that Bill and Ted must overcome. First, they need to get a distraction. Second, they're going to need the, I'm sorry, first, they're going to need the keys to the cell. Secondly, they need to distract their Ted's father. And then they're going to need to get them out of the cell. And when they get them out of the cell, they're going to get confronted by Ted's father and they're going to need to overcome him. In all three of those challenges, they just say, let's just use time travel somehow. Let's have our future self just come back and whoosh, make the keys where we need them. Yeah. And to me, from a just a raw mechanic standpoint, I'm like, whoo, that doesn't really serve these characters very well. Can time travel as a narrative stand in and replace and ultimately make it harder for your characters to grow? That is such a good question. And I think I think you're right about a lot of that. And you're definitely right about that uh, sequence in the third act. I sometimes imagine like what a what a different story this would be or what a maybe stronger story this would be if instead of reminding themselves to throw a trash can on Ted's dad, Ted actually had a character moment and stood up to his dad and said, I'm going to be in this band. I'm not going to Alaska. Uh, I'm going to be my own man. And he doesn't really do that. Uh, So I think you're right about those questions about time travel often being used as a crutch. And I think we see this in a lot of contemporary pop culture uh, when time travel becomes an easy thing to rely on in order to fix mistakes of the past, um, pun intended there. But I think um, there are a lot of ways that we can interpret the uh, time travel device within Bill and Ted as, as more than just a convenience. And I think Part of that uh, it, we can find in H.G. Wells. I think there's a part of it that we can find there. Uh, on the one hand, we can engage in thought experiments like what would Socrates actually think of San Dimas in 1988. It allows us the opportunity to bring in these historical figures and uh, celebrate our own time by having them be amazed by shopping malls and water slides, having Napoleon go crazy for water slides and ice cream. It's a way to reflect on how good our times actually are and to posit a utopia of the future and how we could interact with it. I think that exchange is deeply important to this narrative. And I think H.G. Wells, as he's conceiving the world brain, uh, as an exchange of ideas rather than formalized institutional education that he saw as something that was stagnated, especially in universities. Uh, with Bill and Ted, we get an immersive and atemporal exchange where they can reach out and touch Joan of Arc. They can reach out and touch Socrates, and time travel becomes a way to uh, activate and enlighten and enrich these two guys' lives because even though they're not book smart, they're not good in school, they're not like able to sit down and take a test and pay attention, they are wise beyond their years. They're wise individuals who have uh, deep insights about the nature of humanity. And by giving them that opportunity, I think time travel serves them quite well within this narrative. Party on, dude. Party on, dude. Yeah, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree with your points there. I was really positing that what one, because that 
the the prison break scene is my least favorite scene of Bill and Ted. Well, and honestly, I'm just sitting there like, let's get to the presentation. It's like the best part of the movie. Right. Um, so I usually just just walk past that. It doesn't bother me. But you're right. It is the weakest part. It did bother me. It didn't bother me watching it in my youth. But as an adult, having gone through, you know, years now of story analysis through the midnight myth, I watched that and was just like, wow, that's cheap. It is. It absolutely is. It's like there are a million other ways that they could have put this obstacle on the present for Bill and Ted to overcome that would allow these characters to have grown or to have done something like, you know, stand up to the father. Or if it's just about laughs and gags, just have Bill and Ted collect them at the mall. Yeah, yeah. You know, and there could be plenty of laughs and gags. But in in any event, I, I digress. I um I love what you're saying here. You know, one of my reflections before we jumped into this podcast was that I viewed having now studied history extensively, I kind of thought that Bill and Ted was about the great man theory of history. Yeah. That it was about these great individuals and what these great individuals did to shape history. And so Bill and Ted collect all of these great individuals. But I don't think that analysis and that reflection actually holds up compared to the evidence in the movie. I think you can make a case for it for sure, that Bill and Ted are the heirs to these great men of history, but I think you're right. Well, but I mean, here's the thing. We don't see any of the great deeds of these historical figures. Correct. Not a single one of them do we see. The closest is maybe Socrates, who we see teaching. We see him actually. And that's who Socrates was. He was a teacher. But we don't see Abraham Lincoln win the Civil War. We don't see Genghis Khan form his empire. We don't see Joan of Arc beat back the English and then martyr herself for the French cause. We see Billy the Kid cheat at cards. We see (laughs) Billy the Kid cheat at cards. We don't see Sigmund Freud writing Civilization and its discontents. We don't see Beethoven writing the Fifth Symphony. We just see him at a concert playing uh, for Elise. I'm not saying that right. For Elise, yeah. Yeah, am I saying that right? Okay, great. So we don't see the great acts of these great historical figures rather we see what what i think that this um movie is saying about human history is one it is fundamentally an aspirational tale though there are dark ages though there are periods in time when humans are cruel and inhumane it is able to produce the greatest things about being alive such as philosophy poetry music You could be a society about to be conquered like the French were in the Middle Ages, and a Joan of Arc will rise up to help rally you back to your own independent freedom. And that even a brutal military dictator like Napoleon brought modernity everywhere he went. And that there is a spectrum of human events that will get us to a point where eventually things like war, poverty, disease will be be eradicated. Right. And not that these societies are utopian in a like Garden of Eden sense, but the the very things that plague our human civilization and have plagued human civilization since the start of human civilization are inevitably to be conquered. Yeah, progress. And also I think it says something about pedagogy. Yes. And I think it says something about teaching history and how to teach history. And I think it makes a tactile argument. So- on a certain level, Bill and Ted are bad students. Sure. Not particularly bright and not particularly academically gifted. However, I wasn't considered bright or academically gifted when I was in high school either. So that doesn't mean that they're stupid, right? That means that they're viewed in this cert- certain way 
and that they act in accordance with that view, that they're kind of like the surfer dudes at the school and that aren't very good. They don't see much need to participate in history because they view themselves as destined to be famous musicians. Very similar to my personal journey in high school. I viewed myself to be a a future famous musician, so why bother really caring much about high school? So I totally get what they're coming from. But because of the stakes of the movie that they have to do a history report, that then comes the question, how do you teach history to the fundamentally non-interested? Disengaged, yeah. To the ahistorical, to the person that's just like, I just want to wail on my guitar. What the fuck am I going to read about Joan of Arc or Ludwig van Beethoven for? And it's a tactile argument. The the movie has them interacting with raw historical artifacts and figures. This reminds me to a, a teacher of mine. I went to Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There was a brilliant uh, full-time tenured ancient historian professor there who had his training as an archaeologist. So he had a PhD in archaeology as at the point in his life where he's no longer going out on digs. So what's he doing? He's hanging out at Temple University and teaching people ancient history. And he had a theory, uh, a particular pedagogical uh, outlook, which was, if I'm going to teach ancient history, I need my students to interact with objects. So the way he taught history was that we had to, and I took two classes, ancient Near East history and ancient Egyptian history. And we had to go to museums take pictures of artifacts, talk to the curators of the museums, and research these individual artifacts. And for every error that we were in, we had to submit museum reports in correspondence to that error. So while we're reading, you know, um, know, Pritchard, which is, if you're an ancient historian, you know Pritchard, he wrote like the book of ancient Near East history, and you're reading about the Neo-Chaladians, You've got to go find a Neo-Chaladian artifact, take a picture of it, research that artifact, and discuss where that artifact fit within the historical narrative of the show. Yeah. It, in other words, it was tactile. It was pragmatic. You had, like, you had to see that the history was there and present and that there are still artifacts of it remaining today. I think Bill and Ted teaches us that when Bill and Ted go back in time and they interact with Socrates when they interact with Joan of Arc, when they interact with these historical figures, at the end, when it came to giving their presentation, they knew everything that they needed to say about these historical figures and that these historical figures, because they interacted with Bill and Ted, knew everything about their world too. It is beautiful. Yeah, it all comes together really nicely. And what is their final report? It's not a paper that they just deliver orally. It's a demonstration of the great strengths of all of these people. Uh, he sits down, uh, they both sit down with Napoleon as he's putting out his sort of tactical military analysis for how he's going to defeat Russia. And Ted understands it and is like, I don't think it's going to work. They both get, you know, a little <laughs> Napoleon bit Napoleon gets so pissed yeah, off. Yeah, <laughs> they both get a little psychoanalysis from Sigmund Freud. Uh, they do a little a fight demonstration with Genghis Khan, and then they just let Abraham Lincoln, one of the great speakers and great orators of history, give a speech that is inspired by their own philosophy of be excellent to each other and party on dudes. One Fun- of the... 
Fun fact, Abraham Lincoln was considered to be a terrible orator in his time. Was he really? Oh, yeah, the Gettysburg Address. Holy crap. I forget who spoke before, but they spoke for 45 minutes. So it was a time when you were supposed to speak at length for yeah. a long period of time. And that was not Lincoln's that was style. seen as an art. And he... Lincoln would come out, say what he had to say, and then he would be done. We now consider the Gettysburg Address one of, if not the greatest address any president's ever given. At the time, people did not like it. Man, brevity is the soul of wit. Um, anyway, just a little fun that's historical. Amazing. But yeah, yeah they, they go in and they demonstrate. They demonstrate the sort of human aspects and qualities of these people because there is a level on which you can connect with students like Bill and Ted. It's just not on an academic or scholastic institutionalized level. There is a different way to connect with them. We see, I think, that best exemplified when they go back to ancient Greece to meet with Socrates, or Socrates, however you'd prefer to pronounce it. <laughs> Whichever is correct. <laughs> and they fundamentally understand each other. Socrates is blown away by the fact that people understand him. And how is that? They come in with lyrics from Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. dude. And by demonstrating that for Socrates, by connecting on song lyrics that have clearly been influenced by uh, Greek philosophy by way of a lot of permutations, Socrates is blown away to find somebody who understands him. And to have that be the students that everybody thinks are like colossal fuck-ups, I think is amazing and uh, affirms the uh, the individual um, worth of these kids that a lot of people would have written off. A lot yeah. of teachers would have written off. Well, because... There is, there are, there's no bad history classes. There's only bad history teachers. And I don't want to pile on the teacher in Bill oh, and God. Ted's yeah, because no. he actually seems like he gives a shit. Like, so a lot of teachers, if their kids are failing, they're just going to let them fail. He just said, you know what? Hey guys, you got to do something here. Otherwise I'm going to have no choice but to fail you. So he does give them an opportunity, which sets the whole thing in motion. But I do think when it comes to understanding and loving history, it will take a a great teacher or a great moment or a great experience. For me, my love of history started when I was a boy and my parents took us to a family trip to Mexico and we saw the ancient Mayan temple at Chinsen Itza. And I was like, you know, maybe nine or 10. I was really young and I was blown away that ancient people had done this. Yeah. And then I was even further blown away that the Mayans weren't as ancient as humans were that there were even more ancient humans who also did amazing things. And that's where my love of ancient history, that seed was planted when I was really young by a pragmatic and tactile experience. One that has shaped, fundamentally shaped who I am, fundamentally shaped my intellectual journey and fundamentally altered uh, for the better the course of my life. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I think that's absolutely wonderful. So I, I think that gets closer to answering your question that you laid out at the beginning of what is the purpose of time travel? What is time travel a good story mechanic? And I think in this case, it interacts deeply with theme because this is a story not about uh, just achieving academically. It's a story about friendship. It's a story about love. It's a story about universal human rights. Uh, and you might not see all of this on the outset. You might not see all of this on the, uh, on the DVD jacket, but this is a story about 
people breaking across boundaries, even if those are time, uh, and recognizing that there is an exchange that happens there and that there is something universally recognizable in each other, even if we are thousands of years apart. And let, I want to bring up another theme based upon that one. And I want to talk a little bit more about the mall scene with all of the historical figures. Yeah, great scene. So on one hand, it's fucking fantastic and funny and it's wacky and it's great comedy. On the other hand, we see a few different thematically things that I think are worth pointing out. Sure. So just so uh, people who may not have seen the film in a little bit remember, this is the montage where the historical figures have been set loose in a mall. So Billy the Kid and Freud and Socrates hang out in the uh, food court and try to scam on girls. Beethoven goes and plays a Yamaha keyboard in a music store. Um, Genghis Khan gets set loose in a sports store and starts, you know, just attacking the mannequins. Joan of Arc takes over a, a ladies aerobic demonstration. It's a great scene. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that recap. Yeah. But when the central premise of their project was what would a historical figure think of our present and contemporary times, we get to see this in this scene we get to see what these historical figures would think of the present. And there is a tendency in particular among the historically minded, also among those that are a little more inherently philosophically conservative to romanticize the events of the past. Yeah. There's a tendency to look at man, the greatest times were back then. Yeah. A good example of that is a debate that started in the 13th century on the onset of the Italian Renaissance, when there was a rediscovery of the Greek and Roman classic works, and they were read for enjoyment and for human enrichment that said that, Hey, there's nothing that we can accomplish that the ancients haven't already done. Yeah. We are the dwarfs on the shoulders of giants. And that's an actual phrase that thinkers yeah. were using then. And what we see when we see what happens if Beethoven touch, touches an electric keyboard, you know, what happens when Joan of Arc gets exposed to modern aerobics? Yeah, and women doing, uh, you know, physical activity. Allowed to yeah. do physical activity. <laughs> yeah, in and a not group, just, yeah, in a military not, style group. Yeah, and not just have to be consigned to their gender roles as yeah. delivering men's babies. Right. What do you see when Genghis Khan is exposed to modern sports equipment and helmets and baseball bats and these things? What happens when Sigmund Freud gets a corn dog and gets to talk to a cute girl? Right. All of these things to me represent this idea of breaking down the over romantic romanticization, wow, of the past in favor for a human progress has led us to this point and let us rejoice this point that we're in. That Socrates is going to love California. Yeah, he's going to love San Dimas. You know, that reminds me, uh, you know, I started this by talking about uh, early time travel fiction and uh, the Mark Twain book, a Connecticut, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, is largely satirizing 19th century literature, which was deeply romantic about the age of chivalry. So instead of saying, like, the age of chivalry was so much better, he's like, actually, this was the Dark Ages. Uh, things were barbaric and bad for people. People were in a bad situation back then, and we are in a better situation now. And he blamed uh, 19th century literature by people like Walter Scott um, 
for igniting the romanticism for warfare that led to the civil war. Like he saw that connection, Mark Twain saw that connection. So I think that's uh, rooted in the same kind of argument that you're making there. And that Bill and Ted is really saying like, hey, things are pretty good. Things are never going to be perfect, but they're pretty good right now. And we shouldn't romanticize the time when there was no plumbing <laughs> or we shouldn't romanticize the time when, you know, bandits could uh, ambush you on the street and you couldn't walk around. Like, yeah, absolutely. We, sh- we shouldn't romanticize the time when the greatest philosopher who ever lived in a society was forced to kill himself to drink hemlock because yeah. he was smarter Corrupting than everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like we shouldn't romanticize yeah. that. Like, and we shouldn't romanticize medieval politics where, you know, a potentially very mentally ill woman named Joan of Arc, you know, rallies the troops in order to, to defeat, you know, the, uh, the English when women were not at all enfranchised in any way, shape or form. And then got burned at the stake. Yes. And died as a teenage girl. Yeah. Burned at the stake as a teenage girl. So the, yeah, absolutely. That these things only, like they only make sense in the respect that if there is a continuum of human existence and if that continuum does matter, it matters only if human civilization progresses to an inherently optimistic point. Right. If human civilization does not advance and progress to an optimistic point, history is a dark, dark place to study and learn. But if human civilization is a continuum of constantly improving and conquering our own evils and our own demons while mastering elements of the natural world that used to bring us harm, like disease and uh, the elements. If we are doing that, then history is a fundamentally aspirational, um, you know, line of inquiry. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because when you study history, there was a point right before I got my degree where I paused and I thought, Studying history is studying the extent of human misery because there's so many things that humans have done and it seems like an overwhelming large amount of it has been terrible and has been horrible. And this was a reflection on a class that I took about the transatlantic slave trade and that was just overwhelming to me learning yeah. about the the history of it and learning how empires counted slaves was the the theme of the class and it was so overwhelming that I'm like history is nothing but the study of human misery and human suffering and while that was a dark thought bill and ted offers a counter narrative about history that history is fundamentally aspirational and that humans have done nothing but progress even our dark ages are just interludes between great areas and then the next great area will be greater and that the current contemporary times that we live in are objectively in the span of human civilization, the best time to be alive ever. Yeah. Even if your life sucks now, it sucks less now than it did a hundred years ago 200 years ago down to 2000 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And that to me is sort of the bread and butter of the optimism implicit in the historical understanding of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Yeah. Um, and by, by learning and understanding that and by learning that continuum and by spending time with the flesh and blood people from history, 
they learn the philosophies and the principles that are going to infuse the music of Wild Stallions and become the basis of a utopian society in the future. It kind of reminds me of, there's an album by Rush called 2112, Rush, the great prog rock band, um, that is about, it's a concept album that is about a um, creatively repressive society that is authoritarian in nature and it suppresses anybody who has any kind of creative impulse. But then there is this sort of musical revolution and a character who has like a magical guitar that's sort of like an Excalibur guitar and overthrows this repressive government. Uh, and it sort of feels Bill and Ted-esque in a way because by inheriting the uh, the new instruments from the future that Rufus gives to them and by choosing to learn how to play, even though your dad is a card-carrying member of the NRA, uh, it, it feels like overthrowing an oppressive system. But what's funny about that Rush album is that it's heavily influenced by the philosophy of Ayn Rand and objectivism. And when you said something about how this film could be read as the great man theory of history. I think in the same way, it's rejecting that idea that uh, there is there are greater people. There are people who are too good to be kept down. I think it's saying, like H.G. Wells is saying, that we are all good, we are all worthwhile, we are all worth celebrating, and that we should hold ourselves to the very highest standard of morality towards each other. Yeah, one day I would love to do a whole podcast on Anne Rand. Man, I got a ton to say about oh, that. Oh, yeah, I've got a ton to say too. Yeah, but um, but yes, I totally agree with where you're going there. There is one call out I'd like to make, and it is a rather serious criticism of the the film as a whole. And it comes when they think, when Bill thinks Ted is dead and realizing that Ted is alive in this is in uh, medieval England in the castle where they meet the historic babes and they hug each other and then they stop in the middle of that hug, look at each other and they call each other F A G the I'm, F word. Yeah. I'm going to spell it and not say, yeah, it. no, it's super unfortunate and I'm glad you brought it up because I think we have to acknowledge that it's there. Every time I watch the movie, I forget that it's there because to me it feels so out of place and so out of step with the philosophy of the movie and the fact that these are two guys who platonically love each other. And that is a beautiful thing to celebrate. Uh, it just feels so wrong that all of a sudden they call out this really homophobic slur at each other. And I understand it's a product of its time. It's just something that I wish wasn't there. And if they made that movie today, absolutely would not be there. Yeah. And, you know, growing up in my sort of heteronormative boy world, when, you know, me and my group of friends, when we became teenagers and then into young men, it was fairly common for us to use that word at each other as a insult and a slur to attack each other's masculinity and manliness. And I look back at that time in my life and thank God we outgrew that and don't do that anymore. And for every time I've used that word in that way, I sincerely apologize um, to anyone in the past. But when you ask like, how does that happen? How do people use hateful mean words so cavalierly and so easily. And you look at that scene and you're like, oh, that's part of the reason how that happens. You just allow these like, and in the eighties, nobody cared, but you look back in 2019 and you're like, oh boy, that put a shiver up my spine. Yeah. And it was played as a joke and probably got a lot of laughs when it first came out. It's just, it has not aged 
well at all. And considering how well the rest of the movie holds up and how, uh, how accepting and how open and how progressive the philosophy I think of the movie really is, it just feels so out of place. Um, and I, yeah, I just appreciate you bringing it up because I wouldn't want to ignore it. You know, it's a rare example in the movie of Bill and Ted not being excellent to each other, being shitty to each other, and being excellent to each other is what the whole movie's about. Because how can you argue with the fundamental wisdom of be excellent to each other? I know, yeah. So simple, so great. It's like the golden rule, and it's amazing. And you know what I love, too, about this movie? They don't start there. No, no. In the middle of the movie, they accidentally end up in the future, in the society that sent Rufus and the time machine. They walk out. Everybody pretty much deifies them because their music has made world peace, potentially galactic peace. And they're like, hey, man, they expect you to say something. And Ted just goes, be excellent to each other. And it's natural. It's it's Bill who says be excellent to oh, each I'm other, sorry. and Ted who says uh, party, party on party dudes, on dude. I got it backwards. Which is also very important. But the fact that it just comes naturally, and that everyone else is like, yes, of course, that's what they said. That's the doctrine of our entire society. But for Bill, it's just uh, you know the first thing that pops into his head, and it is simple. But it's it's better than the golden rule, right? It's better than treat others than. Uh, the way you would like to be treated because it's not be good to each other. It's not even our usual sign off, which is be kind. It's be excellent. However good you think you're supposed to be to another person, be better than that. Excel at it. Even if you don't excel in school, even if you don't know how to play your instruments, be excellent to each other. I just love it so, so much. And, and you know, the other thing too, that's really fucking hard to do. It's so hard. Because the day it's hard to, to be decent sometimes. The day to day life is full of drama. It's full of petty grievances, stress and frustration, annoyances, anxieties, and amongst all of the pressures and stresses and shitty aspects of modern life, we have mass pollution. We have labor automation stealing uh, the middle class's jobs. We have technological innovations that have turned uh, this country into two camps ready to rip each other's throats out. At the end of the day, be excellent to each other is the mantra that I think we need so much right now. So, so much. And it reminds me of another the classic sci-fi writer in the Wellian tradition. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit just briefly about Arthur C. Clarke. Wonderful. Arthur C. Clarke, he wrote the 2001 um, books, and he also wrote another book that I think has some um, philosophical parallels, not not necessarily literal parallels to Bill and Ted, and it's a book called Childhood's End. Yeah, Childhood's End. And Childhood's End is one of my favorite books, and the the basic like crux of it is humanity is on a pathway to its next stage of evolution, And that next stage of evolution is one in which we give up and we transcend our physical bodies and become beings of pure mind. And we're able to travel the cosmos. It's the end of our childhood. Humanity, our species, is in its childhood. And our next phase, our adulthood, is this new adventure. And it's about this alien race that helps usher in to help us pass the threshold. And Arthur C. Clarke, also a futurist, also someone 
who had, you know, some interesting predictive abilities about where human civilization and human science was going. Arthur C. Clarke is also one that fundamentally believes in humans of evolution and believes that humans have a, a pathward towards the future, a form of progress that will ultimately end in a better place than we have ever been. And I think that is also very reminiscent, pardon me, of Bill and Ted. And in the absence of making alien contact in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, we have another somewhat uh, supernatural or extra normal force, which is music, which is the most important thing to uh, Bill S. Preston Esquire. And Ted Theodore Logan is music, which helps people to transcend uh, the boundaries that they've put up for themselves and to access excellence. Can pursuing art and the humanities change the world? It's a big question. What do you think? I asked first. Um, wow. As a person who, uh, for most of my life has been trying to forge an artistic career and has studied art and has worked in the arts and humanities, I'd like to think yes. I don't know if, uh, if you know, a, a heavy metal band will ever form the basis of a utopian society. I don't think that's realistic, but I do think that art makes us more open. I think that art makes us access empathy. I think it gives us the kind of exchange and the, um, the open-heartedness that Bill and Ted experience when they meet people across uh, an ocean of time. I think it allows us to, um, to transcend that. Uh, even in a small way. And I think that can be transformative for people. Yeah. I'm going to answer the question and I'm just going to list a few, few names. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Kurt Cobain, Madonna, Prince, just to name a few of the amazing artists and that have fundamentally challenged, enhanced, altered, enriched uh, the the very world and the very nature of the world that we live in. And while I think it's unrealistic to think the power of music can unlock a utopian society, yes, I do think that's unrealistic. However, we need to shoot for that. Yeah. There's no reason that can't be where we aspire. There's no reason that when we are making art, when we are making music, that the goal shouldn't be to make the world better. I think of my just intellectual journey and I think of one band in particular that I encountered at the age of 14, which is a band called Bad Religion, that let me know it's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to think critically. Those are not a contradiction to thinking poetically, that you can do them both simultaneously and that it's okay to not be part of the mainstream. And it's okay to to be an intellectual. It's okay to challenge authority intellectually and challenge its very right to exist. And in fact, those things are good. And what that's personally meant to me now has bad religion, um, you know, overthrown an unjust world. No, but was it the music that helped usher me into my intellectual adulthood? Absolutely. So yes, I do think music can fundamentally alter the fabric of society. I do think art can inspire people. I do think through creating and sharing art, humanity can become better, smarter, more empathetic, and potentially even 
a pan-global peaceful society without war, disease, and hunger. That has mastered the circuits of time. And space. And space. So yes, I do think I have to say, yes, of course it can do that. Yeah. Why else are we fucking doing it if we don't believe that's at least possible? I think that's wonderful. I think that's really, really awesome. Great. Um, I'd like to close, if Mm -hmm. it's okay with you, uh, with a quote from H.G. Wells, who we've been talking about and his influence on Bill and Ted from his work, A Modern Utopia. Uh, He says, quote, let us in this saner and more beautiful world drink perdition to all earthly excesses. Let us drink more particularly to the coming of the day when men beyond there will learn to distinguish between qualitative and quantitative questions, to temper good intentions with good intelligence and righteousness with wisdom. One of the darkest evils of our world is surely the unteachable wildness of the good, end quote. What is he saying there, if not, party on, dudes, drink to excess, celebrate the world, recognize that goodness is not teachable, recognize that goodness is wild. Goodness is a wild stallion. We should foster it, we should nurture it, we should enjoy it, and we should allow it its time on this earth without trying to restrain it. And until next time, guys... Be excellent. Be excellent to each other. And be kind. And party on, dudes. <laughs>